0: the sword and laser. I'm Veronica Belmont.
1: And I'm Tom Merritt.
0: And we are doing a live Google Hangout right now with author Ian Tregellis. Thank you so much for joining us, Ian.
2: Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Uh, folks who may not be familiar with Ian, Ian is not, in fact, a recluse wizard-like mountebank. Though apparently he is descended from one, he hails <laughs> from the exotic climes of Minnesota, where he attended university, obtained a doctorate in physics there, presumably through legitimate means, studying <laughs> radio galaxies. Uh, he then escaped to New Mexico and began writing science fiction and fantasy in order to just blend in with all of the other science fiction and fantasy writers there. <laughs> uh, he is the author of the Milkweed Triptych about Nazi superhumans and British wizards in World War II, and most recently, Something More Than Night, a noir mystery, uh, noir murder mystery set in heaven.
0: Now, I am particularly fascinated by this story. I haven't had a chance to to pick it up yet, but uh, so has writing like a noir style murder mystery set in heaven, has that made you and Tad Williams like, like are, are you guys going to fight to the death? Are you blood enemies now, or are you blood brothers? How does that work um, out?
2: Um, I have never met Ted Williams, but I'm a huge fan, and so when I, I was deep into the planning of something more than night, when I found out about his project, which, you know, presumably has a similar premise, so um, I was alternately thrilled and heartbroken, because I thought, well, if it's good enough for Ted Williams, come on, I mean, he's Ted Williams. Um, but I, I have uh, kept that book in reserve, I haven't read his Bobby Dollar books, because I don't like to cross-pollinate when I'm working on something. But now that something more of the night is out and um, I'm working on other things, so I'm sort of flushing all of that thinking out of my head I can read and enjoy Ted Williams' take on it. Although it'll probably be heartbreaking because I'll read and go, oh, man, see, this is good. This is how you
1: <laughs> Well, it, you could you could just say that you've invented a sub there, right? I mean...
2: Yeah, the two of us together. I like to think that... I like to include myself in groups of two, me and. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would not do that if I were you. For I sure. still
0: kind of want to see the fight to the death, personally, just because we, fight, we could put that fight. on sword and laser video somewhere. I'm pretty sure, like a like a death match Paper kind view. of scenario. Sword and laser Paper finally view. gets It's
2: a pay per view. Well, on. I mean, I think it'd be a short fight, but um, I'm pretty sure he could take me. But what what would my cut be? Because I'm I'm not above debasing myself for.
1: <laughs> you gotta take a fall, Trigillus.
2: you You gotta take a fall on the seventh.
1: Um well it's something more than night, uh, as as you mentioned, now that you've finished with it, you're you're safe to go read some Bobby Dollar. But th- is that because it's a one-off, it is a standalone?
2: Yeah, that's the plan. Um it, it was intended to you know wrap up at the end. Um, you know, in the style of those old noir mysteries, you know, the Hammonds and the Chandlers, um the James M. Kane novels. Although well, I would never compare myself to those writers. Um I took a lot of the tropes and a lot of the plot structure from those. So, you know, it has a definite beginning, a definite middle, and a definite end. Um, and so it's, I could write more in that world. I had a lot of fun creating that world. Um, it's probably my favorite thing that I've have dreamed up. Um, yeah, you know, that's more
0: interesting. The- yeah, I was going to say, you're being very self-deprecating for someone who wrote the Milkweed Triptych, because oh, well, that I- book is absolutely, the, that series is is phenomenal. And it's so intricate and complicated and 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 fascinating to read that I think you need to, the the humble, the humbleness is is maybe a little
2: too much. calling you out. It's pretty good. It's it's sincere. Um, I (laughs) I feel lucky that I get to write books that get published and that people read. So um, every time I get to go through that process, I feel like I've won a lottery. So, um, but uh, yeah, so something more than night is a standalone. Um, I could write more in that world, but uh, at the moment
0: I'm not.
1: I read that you uh, created a, a slang glossary of noir fiction yes. worlds. Is that something you'd ever be interested in making public for, for people to, to page through?
2: It is on my website. Oh, it is. Um, okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, once I was done with the book, I thought this is kind of crazy. Um, I went to all this work. I might as well share it with people, and then people can either uh, find it useful or they can laugh at my, you know, laugh at my research. A lot um, of private detectives
1: will probably visit
2: it. Well, yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm hoping that we're going to see a lot more um, private dicks walking around, you know, carrying irons, you know, drinking rye whiskey. Um, yeah, I, there are a, a number of other kind of glossary resources for that kind of slang, but they're mostly written. Um, they're not as long. They're not as complete, and they uh, they don't include bibliographic kind of contextual references which I found I needed because often when I was reading all the Chandler and the Hammett, um, you know, I'd find a word that was unfamiliar, and I could more or less figure out what I thought it meant based on the context, but I thought, like, if I excerpt this and write this one word down, four months from now, I'm going to have no idea what it means without the sentence. So I needed that, and I also had to organize it for reverse lookups because most of these glossaries are designed so that if you're reading a book and you hit an unfamiliar word, you just look up the word. But I needed to do reverse lookups, right? So I could say, okay, Bayless is talking to the cops. What is a phrase that he would use that means this? What is a phrase he would use that means that? So, but yeah, it's it's actually on my website.
0: That's the thing I find really interesting, because it's almost like you would come up, or you'd, you'd just be writing, and then would you get to a point where you realized, I haven't put in a noir-style slang word in a while, maybe there's something that fits this, or did it kind of hit you in the, during the writing process that you, you kind of knew that there was a term or some kind of slang that worked for that scenario, but you didn't know what it was?
2: Um, yeah, mostly it was the second thing. I would try to... Um uh, I mean, there was a lot of adjusting as I, in the early stages of the book as I tried to figure out exactly what the right level of slang was for this one character. And it's only one character in the book who talks this way. So this sort of obnoxious affectation that he has um, to the extent that nobody else in the book understands what he's talking about because people <laughs> do talk like that. So That's they're great. Constantly, what are you, I don't understand what you're saying. So I wanted him to lay it on a little thick Um, And that meant that basically every page I had to look things up, because he's still, you know, he's telling his story, and so I needed phrases for everything. Um, And that made it a little tricky, because at least in the reading that I did, most of the phrases boiled down to terms for women, um, terms for men, you know, generic ways of saying hello, generic ways of saying get lost, and then there's a lot of terms for drinking and alcohol and drugs. A lot of terms for crime and dealing with the as you would expect, you know, from the genre. Um, so I had to look a little more deeply if he was talking about more mundane things like um, shaving, you know, like that's not something that comes up a lot in these stories. So
0: right, that's that's really interesting too. Do you have any personal favorite slang terms that you got to put in the book?
2: Oh, uh, let's see. Um, one slang term that I didn't, I could not work into the book because even I thought it was way too obscure, and my editor's gonna point out to me that it's too obscure. Um, there's a phrase called um, living on the gooseberry lay, which shows up in the Maltese Falcon, and I, I could not decode that for the life of me. So I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I guess it meant um, making a living, like if you're a vagrant, living by stealing clothes off of clotheslines. So for huh. you do that you're living in the gooseberry lay. Yeah. That, that was pretty obscure. I, I don't know the etymology of that one.
0: It's almost so, like cockney in a way.
1: Yeah. The yeah, cockney it's like the
2: cockney-rhyming cockney slang. slang. Yeah.
1: Did, did you find yourself talking like that at all when you were deep into writing?
2: Um, I'd like to say no. Um,
0: <laughs> You're like I Scram, broad. broad.
2: I, I do know that from time to time I tell my fiancé, come on, let's dust, Angel.
1: So, yeah. Well, why wouldn't you?
0: And that fits really well with the theme
2: as yeah. well. Absolutely.
0: I would yeah. imagine. Um, so actually, we haven't really gotten into what the book is is about.
2: Uh, so there's this guy, and he uh, talks a lot of noir slang. Um, no, it's um, – the premise of the book is that um, on page one of the book, the Angel Gabriel has been murdered. And so there's this hard lock, um kind of scruffy, fallen angel named Bayless, who's been living on Earth for a very long time for complicated reasons. Um, and he gets assigned the job of finding a replacement for Gabriel, because the, um, the hierarchy of angels is intimately related to the structure of reality. And so it's a bad thing, one of the angels' dies, which of course is supposed to be impossible. So he, uh, he sort of picks someone at random, thinking he's going to get some um, some thick-headed mug who will do whatever he's told. But instead, um, he gets the mug's sister, uh, which is how we get the dame in the story. Um, so half the book is told from Bayliss's point of view, um, Bayliss and his sort of uh, shop-worn, poor-man's Philip Marlowe affectation, and then uh, a modern woman, Molly Pruitt, who very emphatically does, does not fit the cookie-cutter mold for a woman in a noir story. Because um, in those old stories, there are really only three or four types of female characters. You know, there's the, um, there's the murderous dame with the heart of ice, with mysterious past. There's the virginal, puppyish sylph. Um, and then there's like the, the acid-tongued Herodin. Um And then really you only can have a woman in one of those three roles, at least in the Chandler novels. So I wanted to write a female character who was not any of those, like a real person. Um, So they're stuck trying to solve this mystery, Um, and it follows sort of the development of a noir story.
1: Excellent. Well, we got some uh, audience questions both off our Goodreads forum and some coming in live during the Hangout. And I want to start with one of those here from Jim, who uh, was prompted by the corkboard behind you to ask this one. He says, how thoroughly do you outline? What is your method for organizing notes for such a complex work?
2: so I will admit to you that before, um, before I got on, I actually moved all the cards out of the field <laughs> of view, because um, I'm very superstitious about people sure. seeing what I'm doing before it's done. Um, for uh, each of the Milkweed books, this corkboard, I think it's six by four, um, was completely filled with milk cards. Uh, the same for something more than night. It was um, basically filled. The project I'm working on now is the same thing. Um, Something More Than Night was actually really easy to plot because I was writing, you know, sort of an homage to the old noir stories, and they, um, Chandler in particular, had, he used the same plot points in every book, he would just kind of move them around like Lego blocks. So all I had to do was identify the Lego blocks and say, okay, you know, what happens in a Philip Marlowe story? Um, Marlowe takes a job that he knows is more trouble than it's really worth. Marlo meets a dame that he knows is more trouble than she first appears. Marlowe finds a dead body. Marlowe gets grilled by the bulls. Um, you know, things like Mar- um, Marlo hides some evidence, things like that. So then I just had to kind of put those together and then thread that with the other point of view. Uh, the Milkweed books took a lot more pre planning because of the precognition and other things uh, that take place across that series. So there's you know, there's a character uh, we talked about a number of years ago who can see in the future, so she's seeing um, across multiple books. So I had to know sort of what's happening in book three that she's seeing when she says this cryptic thing in book one.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that that was more front-loaded effort. Um, but I am an outliner by nature anyway. Um, the thought of writing two or 300 pages into a book and then realizing I've taken a wrong turn and that I'd have to throw it all away just fills me with existential dread. So I couldn't, I couldn't do that.
0: And, and so how much of that changes as you're going through the process? Like maybe you've outlined something and then do you get like halfway through the book and realize this isn't exactly flowing the way I expected it to? Or, or how much revision is there in that process?
2: Lots. Lots and lots. Um, the final book never looks like what the first outline looks like for me. I guess I'm not such a good outliner that I get it right on the first try. Um, usually, I, I kind of think of it like, it's like ironing, you know, and so as you're writing, you're moving the iron, and it's taking out all the wrinkles, and then you can see, like, oh, yeah, I had this very wrinkly outline, but now I see it very clearly. Um, and so the, each draft of the outline is sort of an approximation of the book, and then, you know, you sort of iterate, and then it's not really done until, you know, you're holding the book in your hands, because you can't change it then.
0: All right, so we have some questions from our audience that we got in advance of the show. Um, Nicholas wants to know, uh, are you still working on the Clackers trilogy? It's been a while since you mentioned it on the blog.
2: Yes, I am. Um, I turned it in the first of, so that's a trilogy that I'm writing for Orbit, sort of a a clockpunk alternate history fantasy thing. Um, You know, I'm not a historian by training or nature, so I don't know why I keep ending up writing fantasy alternate history trilogies. (laughs) Um, you'd think I would have learned my lesson the first time around, <laughs> uh, someday I'll learn, damn it. Um, but yeah, so that, uh, I, I've turned in the first book and I'm working on the second book now. Um, I haven't said much about it because I don't, it's still early in the process, so I don't know much about the scheduling, um, or the, you know, sort of the marketing and packaging plans that Orbit has for it, so, um, uh, but in fact I was just talking to my editor about it today, so it's in progress. Would
1: it, would it be this year or are you still looking at like 2015 for it?
2: Um, possibly late this year? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know what they have plans. I mean I, I know that they're making plans for the scheduling, but I'm not aware. Um, sure. I'm just hunkering down trying to yeah. trying to suss out one sentence at a time. Well, so,
1: uh, Nicholas has a follow-up question uh, which addresses your, your predilection for, for alternate history. He wants to know uh, if you plan to write a story centered around scientific themes dear to your heart, uh, perhaps alternate history on the helium crisis and its consequences, for example. Uh, uh,
2: so, he's the guy who's been reading my blog. Aha! Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew there was someone. Um, I, uh, I tend to not write hard science fiction just because it would feel like taking my work home with me. And also I'm lazy. You know, magic is nice because you you still have to think it through, but, you know, it's this rug that you can kind of sweep the uncomfortable questions under. Um, I, I'm lazy, and so with my world building, and so I, hard science fiction is, a I think, a much bigger job. Although I love to read it. I love to read hard SF. Um, I did, I did um, try to split the difference in something more than night because it's clearly a fantasy story, but um, because of the nature of the angels and what they represent, I was able to slip a lot of hard physics into it, hmm. um, basically just a set dressing for fun. So, you know, these angels will be talking, um, Bayless is talking this sort of noir mode, and then he'll go off on this um, this tangent about what happens when you throw information into a black hole, you know, and why do humans think that the quantum information paradox is so complicated when it's, So simple.
0: So I have another funny question. That this is just from me. Um, weirdly, I have been reading a lot of angel-related fiction as of late. Um, for one of my other book clubs, we're reading *Archangel*. Um, I'm reading on my own *Angels' Blood* from the *Guild Hunter* series by Nalani Singh. And I noticed, and I'm not very well well-versed in in Bible studies or anything like that, but there's a lot of the, the same archangels seem to feature very prominently. And I noticed you mentioned Gabriel, and and he's of course one of the primary angels that seems to come up. And a lot of these different tales. Um, what kind of research did you do into that area of the whole thing? Because we kind of talked about the noir, and we've kind of talked about some of the other themes, but in terms of actually writing about angels and archangels.
2: So um, I was really fascinated with the sort of weird angels that you might see on a medieval tapestry. Um, you know, sort of the. Uh, it's interesting because none of this is actually. Uh, you know, codified in the Bible, but um, you know, a lot of medieval theologians, like Thomas Aquinas, put a lot of effort into trying to figuring out like what all the angels were, and how they were arranged, and so they worked them into these hierarchies of you know angels, archangels, principal. These this isn't in order, but you know, principalities, thrones, dominions, uh, cherubim, seraphim. Um, I can never remember them all. I had to write a little beastiary for myself, <laughs> um, and they, you know, in the the in the sort of medieval Christian theology, they um, gave them all these weird attributes, you know, like the thrones. Their job was to stand next to the throne of God and proclaim proclaim the glory of God, Um, which uh, you know, that seems like a strange thing to have to do for all eternity. Um, And they have these weird descriptions, you know, they're very, very science fictional. Um, Angels with four faces and six wings or, you know, angels that are just you know, wheels covered in eyes, and other bizarre things like that. So I sort of skimmed the cliff notes, you might say, of sort of medieval theology, because, you know, it's not like I'm smart enough to really absorb that stuff, just to get sort of a sense of the, um, you know, that, that environment. And then I just completely made it my own, you know, and say, okay, I'm going to introduce a new kind of angel here. What's the weirdest thing that I haven't used yet? Oh yeah, that guy covered in eyeballs, that sounds good. Um, yeah, and I reordered them, too, so, um, uh, you know, Gabriel, I think, is a is a seraphim in in this book, although it doesn't really make a difference, right, because he's still got wings and hiking and a flaming sword around. So that I was a little more loosey-goosey with.
0: That's pretty badass, I have to say. So bringing it back to, um, go ahead. They are, actually, uh, in the, yeah, the those... series that I'm reading right now, they're actually almost murderous. Which is kind of weird. It's almost as though, in in the Guild Hunter series, I know this is completely off topic. They've t- made angels more of another kind of 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 creature out of, you know, like a werewolf or like a vampire. I was gonna say, are
1: angels the next werewolf, <laughs> zombie, vampire trend?
0: I think it's already happening. Yeah, I think.
2: If I happened to lash onto a trend, it was purely by accident. You started it. <laughs> I, <laughs> you and Ted Williams. Well, I, I had this idea like 20 years ago, but I, you know, I wasn't a writer then. Um, so I will say too that like the best, one of the best depictions of the really scary badass Old Testament angels um, was written by uh, Ted Chang, and I'm ashamed that I've forgotten the name of the story. But he has a fantastic story. Uh, I'll think of it later. Sorry, Ted.
0: I'll have to check that out. That sounds that sounds pretty interesting too. Yeah, it's pretty pretty interesting how these themes, you know, it's not not on on purpose by, by any author or you know even if you've come up with it 20 years ago and all of a sudden things seem to coalesce in a certain way and then suddenly it's, it's, it's an interesting thing but that, I think that's actually good for everyone because if something becomes popular it kind of builds steam and and gets picked up by even more people uh, but moving back to uh, to milkweed for a second we have a question from Timothy who says will you ever go back to the world of, of milkweed um, and Mark has a follow-up question of are there any other uh, short stories around milkweed, uh, such as what Dr. Gottlieb saw and what Dr. Ivanovic saw.
2: Um, so I consider the milkweed, uh, so the milkweed to be completely self-contained. Um, my intent was that it didn't ha- wouldn't have any uh, any big loose ends that would sort of accommodate extra books. Um, you know, if someone were to drive a dump truck full of money up to my house and say, "Write us another milkweed book," um, of course I would do it. Um, and I had some ideas about how I could do sort of a standalone book in that world, um, but it would um, it wouldn't have the same scope and it wouldn't have the same characters because I, I I feel that their stories are all completely self-contained. Um, as for short, you know, it's a very spiky universe um, to borrow a term from someone else. So I have somewhere a list of sort of short story ideas that it would be, you know that would be fun to write someday, sort of filling in little gaps in the world um but i it's nice to sort of move on to other things so um i have an idea for one more gretel short story i might write someday Um, what dr ivanovich saw and what dr gottlieb saw are sort of two part two-thirds of sort of a little trilogy of short stories about her that i might try to complete someday um so yeah it's possible i'll go back to that world but uh Probably not at novel length in the foreseeable future.
1: We're not going to find out some some un, previously unknown Gretel granddaughter in you know fighting in the 80s with Reagan or something.
2: Man, you just spoiled it.
0: Oh, that, that would be actually pretty cool. <laughs> uh,
1: well, we've got some other questions before we let you go. That we're trying to get a lot of different authors' perspectives on. Uh, and the first one is, what speculative fiction trope Do you wish would be set up on a shelf and maybe not revisited again for a hundred years?
2: Well, that's a loaded question because I'm guilty of I'm guilty of committing so many tropes. (laughs) Well, you can't. uh,
1: I assume I think tropes are just the building blocks, right? When you talked about those Legos that you were working with, that's tropes. I don't think that's a bad thing.
2: No, not really. Um, I I guess one that gets me is. um, you know, like the teenager w- or the young person with super here, with superpowers who just wants to be normal. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. what yeah. the hell? I mean, if I at age seventeen, man, if a radioactive spider bit, now I know this isn't really the Spider Man story, but you know, if a radioactive spider bit me, I would have been such a jerk. Yeah, <laughs> like fitting in. That was yeah. You know, I wanted to fit in when I didn't have superpowers. You know, now that I can walk through walls and fly, screw that noise. People want to be like me now. I, had, you know, I never thought of that. You're absolutely right because those that trope is
1: trying to be like, oh, as we all just want to fit in. But you're right. If, if we, if we, we want to fit in because we're not outstanding or we don't think we are at that age, right? But if you're like undeniably outstanding, you're totally yeah. right.
2: Yeah, it's, it's false tension. It re, it always reads or views to me like an attempt sort of a, an empty attempt to create tension, you know, between mm-hmm. our protagonist and other characters, but it's not, it just doesn't play that way, I, I don't think.
0: And now on the other side of that question, is there a trope that you wish would kind of come back to the fore, something you'd like to see uh, kind of revitalized?
2: Oh, boy, uh, that's a tough one. Another trope.
0: I Um, I can't even think of something. I can't. I
2: suppose
1: you might be doing it if you really wanted to see it revived. So it might be an unfair question.
2: Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, You know, there are things that some people say are overdone, like um, time travel stories. But I love a good time travel story. Absolutely love it. I'll never get tired of that.
1: I'm with you on that myself. Um, We we often ask authors, and I think we asked you when we had you on the show before, you know, advice for young writers, aspiring writers. But I want to kind of turn that on its head. What advice do you think should never be given to young writers?
2: What advice should never be given to uh, to young writers? Um, Or aspiring. They can be old, too. Just people getting started. (laughs) um, I'll tell you a piece of advice that I... This is a little bit specific. I'll try to generalize it. Um, A piece of advice that I was given when I started writing the Milk Week books, someone took me aside and said, you've got a really promising idea, but the problem is you can't combine superheroes and magic. You can't Mm -hmm. combine, like, science-based superheroes and magic. And so um, I guess I would say... uh, don't listen too carefully to people who tell you, you know, you can't do something as a blanket statement um, because there are no hard and fast rules of writing. There are a lot of rules of thumb and it's worth learning why the rules of thumb. Um, so then you sort of understand when it's going to break them. But the only r- rule is that you can do anything as long as it works. So if you really believe in what you're doing, um, you know, even if your agent doesn't believe in it or your editor isn't quite, getting what you want to do, um, you know, stick with it. Don't let people tell you that your story isn't going to work because it's all in here.
0: That's 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 really great, actually. And you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because I can remember the first time I heard about Bitter Seeds. And I remember reading the, the description and being like, those are two different things. Those each have their own place and they don't work together. And then the way that they did come together and the, the explanation given to, to, to make them work in that same world, it, it made sense. It was almost scientific. And so at that point, it was like, okay, this can happen. And you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, what, what you're saying is just because things don't seem like they fit together, as long as the explanation works, they absolutely can. Oh,
2: I'm, I'm glad I was able to fool you.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I, had, I was excited when I heard it because I was thinking dinosaurs on a spaceship or predator versus alien, like two great uh-huh. tastes that taste great together. Uh, so I was excited going in, but it was even better than I expected because it did meld so seamlessly. You did such a good job oh, of you. making it make sense in, in that world.
2: Thank you. I, that makes a little to me.
0: And our, our final question was, uh, finish this sentence. I'd like to see my book to be seen next to... Tom wrote this one. I don't really understand the question.
2: So I'd like to, to see it something more than night next to everything that Tim Powers ever wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Powers Good and Robert Alassie.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Um, and also I, we were just curious who, who built your website because it's phenomenal.
2: Oh, thank you. Thanks a lot.
0: It's, it's really, it's really well done. It looks 3D. Like the little element on the left-hand side actually looks 3D to me.
2: You have just made my friend Richard's uh, whole month. Um, that my website was designed by my friend Richard Miller, um, as a because obviously he does this for a living, um, but he's a friend of mine, and so he kind of he planned to give me sort of the friend rate, and then it became like his own personal art project. So every time I pull up the site, like it would get fancier and fancier.
1: Oh, that's uh, cool. We haven't that. updated
2: it in a number, you know, updated the design in a number of years, but. That's because I like it, and it's my website. Yeah, it
1: looks good, too. (laughs) iantregillis.com, I-A-N-T-R-E-G-I-L-L-I-S, if you're listening to the audio version. Uh, Or just search Ian Tregillis. Google will correct your spell.
0: Yep, and and Ian, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you uh, to everyone watching out there. And if you want to get in touch with us... Our uh, email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com. And if you want to call and leave a voicemail, the phone number is 415 sword We'll see you guys next time. Thank <laughs> you, Ian.
2: Thanks a lot, guys. Let's fun. Bye.